turn it on in this day and age. Find your place in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. Always love seeing our kiddos going out to kids' church. And they're going to have a good time, enjoy all the fun games and activities, but also going to learn about Jesus. And several of our kids are, uh, are, are involved in a small group hour of a new believers class. I'm excited about that. We've got like 11 or 12 of our kids, boys and girls that are learning. Some have made professions of faith and some are very close to making professions of faith. And so uh, your prayer time on a daily basis, if God puts that in your, in your mind, please pray for them. There's several kids that are right there at the cusp. One of them is my own daughter. And so we're praying and, and talking. Even yesterday I was working with her and her book that she has. And just the question was, um, when, what was it that showed you that you needed to become a Christian? And Obviously, my daughter's not there yet, and so we just had an opportunity to talk through that. I said, why haven't you come to that point? You, do you realize you need that? Yeah, I know I need that, but uh, she just hasn't come to that place of faith and repentance. So that should be a prayer for all of us, is that our children, and as well, adults that are there at the edge of, of making a decision for Christ, that they would come to a place of faith and repentance. Nehemiah chapter 2, I'm one of this morning... Go back and recap what we talked about last Sunday and try to bring some more application uh, to or for us as we look at this text and really the idea of, of moving to the work. This morning, I wonder, as parents or perhaps even grandparents, uh, if you've heard the question already of why daddy. I, I've heard that question a few times. My wife's not here and our little, little one is not here as well. And so um, I didn't verbally hear that question, but I think I non-verbally heard that question as I was trying to wrestle my kids during the, the singing time of sit still, be quiet, please participate, please don't, please put the phone down. I, I look back there and one of them's driving a race car on my phone that I didn't know about while we're singing. That's what happens when you close your eyes and you sing is you don't know what your kids are doing around you. And so um, I've heard that question often, why daddy? And if you're a parent, you understand that question. You, you've heard that question probably even today many times. I hear that question often, obviously because of my children, but because I'm around a lot of young families with children. And so I hear other children ask that question. Uh, I mean, kids like to ask questions. They're full of questions. They want to understand the reason behind what they're being told to do or what they're being asked to do. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I believe that's very natural. It's very human to want to know why. Uh, they want to know what, they want to know how, and all three of those questions are, are, are the same for us even as adults. We want to know what, and we want to know why, and we want to know how. We're seeking answers all the time. We ask these questions even in the church. We want to know what it is we're supposed to be doing. We want to know why it is we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And we, know, we want to know how we're going to do what we're supposed to do. In fact, the Lord Jesus, just before he ascended into heaven, there up on that mountainside, was asked these same questions by his followers, those 120 who went with him up the mountainside. They asked him what was going to happen, why it was delaying. They want to know how all this was going to take place. And there on the mountainside, we learn from Jesus' words the answers to these questions. Matthew 28, verses 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always. Luke gives us another aspect of what Jesus said and how he answered these questions with the disciples there on the mountainside. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Did you catch what Jesus does in these verses? How he answers the what and the why and the how. See, Jesus here tells the church what they are to do. They are to be disciple makers. They are to go and to make disciples. He tells them the why of, the, of, of this commandment. They are to go and do this because Jesus has all authority. And he's commissioning and telling them to go and do as he's done for the past three years. He also tells them how they're going to do it. He says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You see, in these great commission passages, Jesus calls us to be a church that intentionally, a church that strategically, and a church that creatively as well as urgently takes the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. That is what God has called us to do. That is what the Great Commission is all about. It's about you and I as followers of Jesus bound together in a local body of Christ going out very strategically, very creatively, thinking outside of the box. How can we reach this group of people? What can we do now to to engage them? It's about being urgent and, and, and passionate in our gospel presentation, in our discipleship. It's about going out and fulfilling the Great Commission. Here in these verses, Jesus calls us to the work. What Jesus is doing here to these disciples and for you and I as the church is he's inviting us to join him in the work. To to join him in this wonderful invitation of joining him in the work of the gospel. And as we look here in Nehemiah chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah's story was very much the same. His story is very much the same as ours. Now, we don't lie or we don't uh, dwell in a city that's laying in ruins like Jerusalem, but his story, like our story, was an invitation to join God in what God was already doing. Jerusalem was in ruins. Its walls were broken down. Its gates were burned and destroyed by fire. Many of the peoples, we've been already studying this book, we see that many of those who had returned with Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel and Ezra had left Jerusalem to go and live in the countryside because the city was such a mess, such devastation there. The people were discouraged in Jerusalem. The poor were suffering from incredibly high taxes. The Persians were taking all of the revenue that was being generated. And then all of the neighboring groups continued to dominate in their own commerce as well as in politics. Nehemiah, though, served at the hand of the king. He was the cupbearer to the king there in Persia, King Artaxerxes. And he was in Susa with the king when Hanani and some men came there and shared a report about Jerusalem and its people. They told Nehemiah of the desperate and the shameful state of Jerusalem. Told him about the broken down walls. Told him about the gates that were burned by fire. Told him about the the shameful state of the people. And upon hearing that report, Nehemiah, as we've already seen in chapter 1, immediately begins to pray. He immediately begins to seek the face of God. And for four months, he's praying and seeking God and asking God for an opportunity to speak to the king. And all the while, during those four months, as he's praying and patiently waiting, he's also preparing. He's praying so that he's ready for that opportunity to speak before the king. You see, Nehemiah believed God would act. Nehemiah understood what God had said in Deuteronomy 4, that when you sin, I will scatter you to the nations, but I will bring you back. Nehemiah believed God's word, and he believed God would be gracious toward the Jewish people, just like his word had said. And so he persistently and patiently prayed for God to move. 
And his faith led him to make those preparations so that when God did move and did open up the opportunity, he would be ready. And finally, there in this early part of chapter 2, we saw a few weeks ago that when the time came, Nehemiah was ready for action. He was ready to voice the need. He was ready to ask for resources and supplies. And when he had this opportunity, God gave him favor with the king. And then shortly after that, he's off on his way to, to Jerusalem. Look with me in Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's begin reading in verse 9. Read this passage that we looked at last week. Nehemiah says, And then I came to the governor of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into the, to my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Nehemiah was this great man of prayer. As we see here, he's also a great man of action. His story reveals to us that there is a time to pray. And Ecclesiastes tells us there's a time for everything in, in this life. There's a time, as we see in Nehemiah, to pray, a time to prepare, but there's also a time to work. And for Nehemiah and the Jews here in Jerusalem, the time had come for them to work. During this time of prayer and fasting, God had answered Nehemiah's questions of the what and the why and the how. He saw the need. He understood why he must act. And he knew how it would be accomplished. And so when Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem, he did for the Jews what God had done for him. He began to show them and cast a vision and reveal all that the Lord had put in his heart. He answers the what, the why, and the how that the people in Jerusalem were asking. And in so doing, Nehemiah helped to inspire them to the work. And last week we looked at this and I shared with you four things that Nehemiah did to help inspire them to the work. See, he helped them to see the need. 
He himself needed to see the need. And God had placed that ability to see the need even in Susa. He began to understand the great need in Jerusalem and the great need in the people of God. And then as he arrives in Jerusalem, there in these verses 12 through 15, we see him traveling around the city at night and looking at the ruins and looking at how the things, uh, the, the walls and the gates lay in ruins. He saw the need and the shameful state of the city of Jerusalem and its people. And then as he comes and he shares this vision with the people, he helps them to see the need. They could see the, the walls broken down. They knew the condition that they lived in. But he also needed to help them to see the greater picture of the need in their lives. He helped them to see that rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem was not just about defending the city. It wasn't just about improving the city's economy. It wasn't just about making their lives better and more comfortable. Rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and restoring the gates of Jerusalem was not about those things. It was about the name and the glory of God. It was about exalting the name of God. It was about the fact that the Jerusalem and the people of God should no longer suffer derision, should no, should no longer live and, and sleep and work and do everything they did in disgrace with all the people surrounding them, these pagan nations surrounded them looking at the people of God and saying their God is one of two things he's not big enough to hold them and sustain them or he's forsaken them both of which were false God is more than capable of doing anything he wants to do he is the king of kings and he is the lord of lords he is the maker of the universe and he holds kings and leaders in the palm of his hand he is the one who moved the heart of xerxes here to bring about the restoration of jerusalem the bible clearly tells us that god never leaves us nor forsakes us the reason jerusalem lay in shame and the reason the people of god experienced shame in their life was because of the shamefulness of their own sin it was the rebellion against God that led them to this state. But even in their rebellion, God had promised, if you will repent, I will restore you. There was a promise in Deuteronomy 4 that God would not forsake him. There would be a time when the judgment would be over and he would bring them back into the land. He helps the people see the need. He also helps them catch the vision. There in verse 17 and 18, he helps them to catch the vision. And as they hear all that God had been doing and placing in the heart of Nehemiah, their response was, come, let us rebuild the wall. Let us rise up and do this thing. So they weren't just kind of twiddling their fingers and, and, and walking around with their hands in their pockets and wondering what they should do or why they should do it. They weren't even wondering how they were going to do it. They understood that God is in the midst of this thing. They caught the vision and their response was, let us rise and build. Let us get about the work for which God has called us. In the midst of all this, he also helps them understand there's going to be some opposition. Even as Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he sees that he's being opposed by the leaders in the surrounding areas. They're ridiculing, they're, they're mocking, they're making fun, they're falsely accusing the people of God. They're seeking to do anything and everything they can to put an end to the work of God amongst God's people. And so as we seek to do the work of God, we need to understand there will be opposition. It will be opposition from within, and there will be opposition from without. That always happens. As we move on in this text, we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that this accusation and this opposition is, is intensifying, so much so that the people of God are, are standing watch, guard over the walls, with a sword in their hand and a trowel in their other hand. They're doing the work even while they're prepared for battle. We need to expect opposition. We need to look internally even in our own lives because as God calls us to His work in our lives and in our churches and in this world, sometimes the opposition is our own 
fearfulness. Sometimes the opposition is our own lack of faith, the, the fact that we don't trust the Lord, and we see the how out there, and God says, this is how it's going to be done. You're going to trust in me, but for some reason, we, have a, we don't have the ability to come up and believe that God can do what he tells us he can do. So the opposition, many times, is within our own hearts and our own souls. And then lastly, we saw last week that he helps them to rest in God's provision. As this accusation comes from these three men, uh, asking basically, are you rebelling against the king? He says, no, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. What is Nehemiah saying here? And I don't believe it's just him. I believe the people of God are with him. As they stand before these three men, they're saying this, we are resting in the provision of God for our lives. We can't explain it. We don't know how to to give you a detailed plan of how this is going to happen. But we trust in the God who has called us. We trust in the God who will provide for us. We're resting in Him. So Nehemiah here answered the what and the why and the how questions that these Jews were asking. These four facets of inspiration are always true in our life. You see, when God calls you to the work to take action, it is imperative that we see the need, that that we catch the vision of God for our life, that we expect and and understand that opposition will come, but in all of that, we rest in God's provision. And and so it doesn't matter what area of your spiritual life you're having questions about this morning or whatever God's calling you to do in your life today, these four things are always true. God will help you see the need. He will help you to catch the vision. He will show you and help you understand that opposition is always there because anytime you're going into the work of God, you should expect opposition. We just prayed over Steve, and he had to slip out to go preach in Petersburg uh, later this morning and then tonight. We prayed over him because he's leaving to go to Seoul, South Korea later this week. And we know that as our, uh, our fellow brothers and sisters are there sharing the gospel with people from all over the globe, there also is going to be an enemy there who's working against them. And so we pray against the enemy. We pray for the victory in the hearts and souls of men as the gospel is shared that people would respond in faith. And so as we pray against the opposition, we're resting in God's provision. You see how that works? We're resting in the provision of God, even as we understand that there is opposition against the work of God. And so last Sunday, I took these four things, and I applied them to our renovation project. I talked a little bit about the why last week. And this morning, I want to flesh that out a little bit more. I want to give you more of an update of kind of where we're at and, and what's coming from that standpoint. In other words, what are we seeking to do in this renovation? Well, I mentioned last week, and I've mentioned before, that we're going to update our worship space, so the room that we're sitting in right now, the foyer that is behind us, our senior adult small group space, which we currently have three or four classes that meet in the hall behind us. We have three senior adult classes that meet below us in the fellowship hall. And so the, the, the plan for the renovation is to take all of our senior adult classes and put them on this hall behind us so that when you come in on a Sunday morning, you don't have to leave the main floor. You don't have to go up a stair or down a stair unless you just absolutely feel the, ne- the need to go up a stair or down a stair. But you come in, you're on the same level. I believe that is very important for us as a church to accommodate our senior adults because we don't have an elevator. So it just makes sense. However, by doing that, it will require us to construct a new office building for our church offices, which now uh, encompasses about six of the rooms in this hall behind us. And so that's what we're seeking to do. This past November, uh, we as a church affirmed a 
and tasked a seven-member renovation team to carry out this project, to do all the research, to, to, uh, to, to develop a plan, and then bring a proposal to the church of what this renovation will look like. And I want you to know that our team has been working diligently. We've had a number of meetings. We've met with uh, outside peoples. We've even contracted with Church Interiors, which is a church renovation and remodeling company. And they came in on January 15th and did a full preliminary study of what our facility is. So we, what we did is we sat down with them as a team that morning and that evening. That morning we shared with them all of the things that we would like to see done. We kind of talked ministry, we talked philosophy, we talked how all these renovations would flow into the, how our ministries operate. They spent the rest of that day uh, taking measurements. They already had all of our blueprints of the facility. And, uh, and then later that night, they showed us a rendering of what this potentially could look like if we were able to do everything that we want to do. And then the following week, uh, their audio-video lighting technician came in, and he met with Nick and I, and, and we walked through, and Jonathan uh, as well was with us. And so we walked through all of the, the needs that we have from an audio-video lighting perspective and so what will happen next is this month, in about two weeks or so, we should get a full plan back with an itemized cost list of what these things will cost. And so this is sort of an a la carte thing. We'll be able to say, all right, here's our budget. This is what we, our, the, our cap. We can do this, this, and this. We can't do these things. And so they'll go back, take those, those um, decisions, and then they'll come back with a full plan with, for us, which we will bring to the church at some point in the next few months and share with you for a vote of affirmation. Uh, a project of this size will require funding, a st- very strategic funding plan. And so uh, the team, in a few weeks, on February 26th, will meet with representatives from a stewardship consulting firm called Impact Stewardship. They'll fly in on the 26th, and they will uh, help, they will ship Share with us how they can help us develop a comprehensive capital stewardship campaign. And so what that company is going to do is really going to be a big help to me and our staff to be able to know how to correctly and and, uh, efficiently share with you all of the things that God has put into my heart and our hearts. And so they're going to help us cast this vision. So we see the need. This consulting firm will help us with a language so that we can correctly and efficiently and and, and in the best way possible cast this vision to you and to go through all of the different details of what it takes to raise the capital that we need to do this sort of project. And so that means that there will be a stewardship capital campaign, three years. It will start at some point later this year to raise the money for this. And so we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks, in the coming months, but that is the plan for that. And so when all that is finalized, we'll bring that to the church for affirmation to move forward. So that's the what of what this is. Last week, I also talked briefly about the why. See, why do we need to do something like this? I understand that a project of this nature scares us. I I guarantee you, I don't know if I can guarantee you that. I don't think I'm scared, the, the, the most scared of this project. But the whole idea of in, stepping into this sort of realm is a little scary, right? It can make you a little apprehensive about moving forward. There's a lot riding in this project. There's a lot on my shoulders in this project. I mean, if it falls on its face, guess who bears the brunt of that? Moi, Right? And so I understand what some of you may be thinking. I understand the fearfulness that may be just kind of welling up within you. 
I, I get all of that. But again, we rest in the, pro, in the provision of Almighty God. And so last week I talked a little bit about the why. I want to flesh that out a little bit more. Why do we need to do this? Well, if you take a look around the community, just like all of America, we are becoming more and more lost. So when this, this project, when it's boiled down, it's not about being cool or sleek or hip or modern or any of those things. It's about the souls of men, women, and children. It's about lostness. It's about lostness. See, we have a gospel mandate. We just read the gospel, the Great Commission earlier. We have a gospel mandate to reach these people who are lost. And where God guides, and he's always guiding us to reach lost people. He's always guiding us to make disciples of all people. And everywhere he's guiding us, he is providing. And he gives us the tools that we need for the job he's called us to do. And one of those tools is this campus that we're on today. And in our culture, like I said last Sunday, in our culture, the church campus is still a tool. It's still a very effective tool. Now, you may come and pose the question, Pastor, do we need a brand new building? Do we need whatever it is we throw out there? Do we need that to be effective and to be solid Christians and to be gospel preachers? No, you don't need that. You don't need need a building to have church, right? Would we all agree this morning that the building we're setting is not the church? Right? This is brick and mortar. If, a, if we got a huge snowstorm and a huge ice storm, and it, and obviously, hopefully, we're not here, but it imploded this building this morning because of the weight of all that stuff, church would still go on. We'd meet in the school, we'd meet downstairs, we'd meet somewhere because the church is not the building, the church is the people. However, God has given us an, a tool here in our culture that is still very effective. And so, a tool always needs to be sharpened so it can be effective. Anytime you're out chopping wood or cutting trees with a chainsaw, if you begin to have a dull axe or a dull chain on your saw, you won't be cutting very effectively for very long. You're going to be trying to swing harder or you're going to get frustrated and just quit. You need a sharp tool to be effective. And so we need to always keep our tools sharp. Our worship center that we're sitting in right now is rebuilt after... Uh, after it burned in 84 and so it's been 30 plus years where it's had very little updates and so it's time to bring this room this tool up into the 21st century and make it modern why because it's a tool that we can use and so I believe it's imperative that we constantly keep our current our facilities current and clean because it's a tool and tools become rusty and tools become dull and thus they become ineffective that's the why It comes down to reaching people the gospel. Am I saying this? If we build this and redo this, they will come. I'm not saying that at all. I I, I preach against that mentality. God, the Great Commission doesn't call us to go out and say, hey, come and see what we have. Come and see what new tools we have. Come and see what little trinkets we have. Come and see what coolness we have. No, we can't ever attract the world more than the world can attract the world, right? But we can take the tools God's given us and use them to preach the gospel. So as we are out sharing our faith, as we are out discipling people and inviting them to come learn more about Jesus here in our worship services and in our small groups, we want to have a place that's engaging, a place that's warm, a place that's welcoming, a place that is modern. Not for all of us sitting here today because we're okay with it, right? You're here this morning. But it's about the people who are not here yet. A fresh face, a fresh look, a feel of vibrancy. That's the why. What about the how? 
How are we going to fund this project? I mentioned earlier we're going to have a stewardship campaign, but really it comes down to this. First and foremost, we will rest in the provision of Almighty God. We will rest in the provision of Almighty God. See, we serve the one true living God. We serve the God who is inexhaustible. We serve the God who owns everything. He is the one who not only gives us life eternal, but he gives us everything we need in this life today. How many of you this morning could testify that God provides for you every single day? If you're not raising your hand, you're either asleep or you're lying. Everything we have, James says, every good gift is from the Father above. Everything we have. And so if God is a good, good father as we sing, will he not also take care of his children? Absolutely. And so as we rest in God's provision, we will have a three-year capital stewardship campaign. And, and, and this campaign will be used to fund this project, to build what we're seeking to build, to renovate what we're seeking to renovate. And so what we're going to do during this process is ask our members and ask our regular attenders to give sacrificially above and beyond the tithe. To fund the renovation. We'll spend several weeks teaching on biblical stewardship. Uh, I heard a few times this week people ask me the question, Pastor, if, if, uh, if the numbers that you shared last week, that there is a large percentage of our, of our membership, or at least our contributors who are not tithing, at least in, in your opinion, shouldn't we deal with that issue first? Absolutely. That's why we're going to teach the stewardship. We'll spend several weeks in our small groups. I'll preach to it. And we're going to teach what the Word of God says about biblical stewardship. Why? Because Romans 10, 17 still says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. I firmly believe that as we believe the Bible and read the Bible and trust the Bible, begin to live the Bible, our faith will grow. It's not on my shoulders to persuade you to be obedient in this area. It's not on my shoulders or our leadership's shoulders to uh, coerce you to be obedient in this area, persuade you to be obedient in this area. It's all about the Word of God sinking deep into the life and the soul of your heart so that you become faithful in all areas of life. And so we'll spend several weeks teaching on biblical stewardship, allowing the Word of God to speak and to develop our faith. And then... We'll have a first fruits offering to kick off this campaign where we'll ask you to come in and, and, and give a sizable sacrificial gift on that first Sunday in this campaign. And I, my prayer is, God, in that, in that, in that giving, in that offering, blow our socks off by giving us, I don't know, 50% of what we need to do the renovation. You say, Pastor, how in the world could we ever do that? Faith. I looked at our bulletin this morning and we're... Uh, I don't remember the exact numbers. We're not terribly behind where we need to be budget-wise. I don't know a church yet, really, that meets budget on a consistent basis. I could probably give you about five of all the churches I know in the Southern Baptist Convention. But um, we're not very far behind, which tells me two things. If everyone tithed in our church, we would be exceeding our budget. You know, we set the budget up based upon previous years giving, you know how that's work, that works, right? We look at our receipts from what we took in the year before, the year before that, the year before that. We use all those numbers to kind of project what we would bring in this year based upon our attendance and all those things. And, and so if everyone who attends our church as part of our church would tithe, give a tenth of your income to the Lord, we would exceed our budget. See, our budget would increase and we would never have to do a capital campaign. Do you know that? If we all gave faithfully, we'd never have to do a capital campaign. God would fund it and we'd never have to ask you to do something different and special. If we just became obedient in that area, I'm sorry, I'm meddling right now. Let me get back to preaching.
We're going to ask you to give above and beyond a sacrificial gift, especially on that first Sunday. And I truly believe that God can blow our, I'm praying that God will blow our socks off on that first Sunday. We would take in an amount of money for this renovation that we would have to step back and say, Almighty God is the only way this is able to happen. I know this makes you uncomfortable. That's why no one's saying amen. <laughs> I know it does. It makes me uncomfortable. Because what? <laughs> what? Oh. Who, I don't know who's getting fired today up there today, but... Um. I don't, I would rather preach just on the gospel and lead people to Jesus than to do what we're doing today, but we're called to not only read the whole counsel of God and study the whole counsel of God, but as a pastor, I'm called to preach the whole counsel of God. And I can't leave out the portions that are a little bit more uncomfortable than others. You got to deal with everything in the text. And so the Bible speaks extensively about how we're to handle our money, how we're to handle the things that God has given to us. And so I understand the anxiety this may bring in your heart. I understand that people would prefer to not hear about tithing, much less a capital campaign that would ask them to give above and beyond the 10%. I understand because this is not my favorite subject to preach either because it puts me in a peculiar position. It puts me in a position where people, especially a guest that would be sitting here this morning, say, you know what, all, all, that, church, all that church cares about is money. That's, that's not true at all. All that church does is preach on money. That's not true at all either. A few times a year, I will address this issue. I, I spent four weeks in August speaking on biblical stewardship. I think it's important to do that. But I don't preach on it all the time. Now, during the offering time, I do challenge you to give above and beyond. I, take no, I, I make no apologies about that. But I understand that this is a very difficult subject, uncomfortable. But listen to me. As a Bible preacher, God has not tasked me and called to me to make sure that you're comfortable. He's called me and tasked me to make sure that you're faithful and holy. Do you see the difference there? You can, you can find a church on every corner in this country that will make you feel comfortable. That's not my calling in life. That's not your calling as a Christian to live in a state of comfort. If that's the calling and you think that's the teaching of Scripture, the Lord needs to apologize to a whole lot of people in the Bible. You just go read Hebrews 11, the hall of faith there, and you see how people were sawed in two. If the calling of God on a Christian is that you be comfortable, God needs to apologize to a lot of his followers. God calls us to be holy. God calls us to be obedient. God calls us to be faithful with his word. And so it doesn't matter what the word says. Our obligation is to live and flesh out the word. The truth is, as I said earlier, if every believer in our church was obedient in this area of our lives, biblical stewardship, we would not need a capital campaign. But since a significant percentage of givers in nearly every church on the planet do not tithe, we don't have that luxury. And so what keeps believers from being obedient in this area is a question we really need to ask ourselves. Why is it that causes us to not be obedient? I believe there's two reasons. First, you're stingy. You're just flat stingy. You're like Scrooge. Now, I'm not, I'm not seeing you guys, of course. <laughs> Generally speaking. But if it slaps you in the face, it's probably true. You're stingy. You don't want to. You don't want to. 
You sell a piece of property and you don't give to the, to the Lord 10% of that. You're stingy and rebellious. You make X amount of dollars from your paycheck this week. You don't give 10%. You're stingy and you're rebellious. I didn't say it. God said it. So don't throw stones at me. I will throw them back. <laughs> but you're stingy. Or secondly, you just lack faith. You don't trust that God will take care of you. You think that you know, you know better than Almighty God. That's what you're saying. When you don't live out obedience in this area, what you're saying is, good night, I didn't know it was 10.08. What you're saying is that you know better than God. It's a dangerous place to live. It's a dangerous place to live. The Bible makes very clear that God owns everything, and that we're to be stewards who manage what He owns. And so understand that you're, some may be struggling in this area. I, I, this week I've had conversations with people where I really, just in my heart, I, I learned that I do have an element of empathy. Some of you say, well, man, he doesn't have any compassion or empathy. I, I really, I score really low on mercy. And I'll just go ahead and confess that. That is not a, a, a strong trait in my life. That's just personality. It's the way I'm wired. Some of you are like that. You, you, you understand. But I really do love people. I really do have a heart for, for people. I really do have empathy for people. And this week as I had conversations with folks who are, who are struggling in this area of just, I don't know how I would make ends meet, I don't know how to do this. I found myself rationalizing with the Bible because of their situation. And almost bringing myself to a place to excuse them because of their situation, which would cause me to say something like this. Just give what you want, God will understand. Is that a true statement? It's not. And so I had to come back to what the word says, Malachi 3.10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And so what God is saying here is, despite your situation, despite what's going on in your life, be obedient. Trust me in this. So as a follower of Jesus, we always have to begin with the word of God. We always end with the word of God. It and it alone is the authority over our lives. God has spoken. He's given you a promise after promise after promise in his word that he will supply every need in your life. But you have to be obedient. So as we seek to rest in God's provision, let me share with you a few things. And I'm going to try to do those, these really briefly uh, that we need to keep in mind. First of all, when God has spoken, presented the need, made his will known, you don't trust in yourself. You don't trust in yourself. Nehemiah is not trusting in himself. He's looking up. He's looking up. Like you, I read in my devotion time yesterday, Moses there in the beginning of Exodus, and when he meets God on the side of the mountain there in that burning bush, God tells Moses to go and back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to release his people. And when God met Moses there on the mountainside, his first response, Moses' first response was, who am I? He looked at himself. So as we understand what God's calling us to, what he's leading us to do, we should never trust in ourselves. That was Moses' problem. And if you read chapters 3 and 4 in Exodus, you see this back and forth between Moses and the Lord, and it ends up with God's anger being kindled against Moses. We don't want to live in that state, so don't ever trust in yourself. Secondly, don't trust in your abilities. Don't trust in what you can do. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses begins to doubt his abilities to speak and to lead and to persuade. He declared his weakness there in verses 1 and again in verse 10. And so he crippled his faith by looking at his inabilities. All of us could look around and say, how in the world could we ever do this? 
we should look around and say, why can't we do this? Because we're not looking at ourselves, we're looking at the Lord. So don't trust yourself, don't trust your abilities. Thirdly, you don't trust in your possessions. You don't trust in your possessions. Moses held a staff in his hand. And as he listened to God's call upon his life, he began to recognize that what he possessed was not enough for the job. I mean, here's, here he is. He's just a shepherd. He's not a leader anymore. He's not a, he's not a, a, a political figure in Egypt any longer. And so he began to look at what he had, and he realizes it's not enough for the job. It was exhaustible. The limited resources he held crippled his faith. But when God has spoken and presented the need and made his will known, here's what you should do. Number one, trust in God. He and he alone is good. He is faithful. He is full of love. In the face of Moses' fear and doubt, God assured him that he would be a constant presence throughout the journey. And when God has made his will known, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves and put them onto God. Trust the Lord. Don't trust yourself. Number two, trust in God's word. He's given us a promise in his word. In fact, he's given us promise after promise in his word. And the Bible says that it never returns void. So God here, as he's speaking to Moses on this, on this mountainside, he reminded him that he was the God who had called Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. As God reminds him of this, what is he doing? He said, I've already spoken. I told Abraham I was going to make him the father of many nations. I told Isaac, this is going to be your land. I said that to his son Jacob. And Moses, I'm saying it to you right now. You go to Egypt and you bring my people back to this land. Why? Because I have spoken. Trust in God's word. And then thirdly, trust in God's power. God is the one who split the Red Sea. If you remember the story of the Exodus... After they crossed the Red Sea, God is the one who split the rock and gave the people of God water to drink from. He's the one who fed the millions of Jews there in the wilderness with manna from heaven that every single night as the dew would fall upon the land, the food would fall upon the land. He's the one who calls here in Nehemiah 2 the, 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 the Persian king to literally fund the rebuilding of Jerusalem. God reminded Moses of his power by turning his staff into a snake and causing his hand to become leprous. Do you remember reading that yesterday, if you're reading with us chronologically? That is the God who did all of this. And he says, I will be with you, and I'll give you everything that you need. Moses, you think you can't speak? Moses, you think you can't lead? You remember your brother Aaron? He's going to come out and meet you. He will speak to the Pharaoh, and you'll be like a God to Aaron. Trust in God's power. This morning, we may be shaking in our boots because we don't know how these things are going to happen, but we must trust in the Lord. I heard a story, and I'm going to end with this this morning. I've heard a story David Jeremiah has shared a couple mornings ago. I listen to him for a few minutes when I leave the Y every morning, and he's been preaching on stewardship for the last couple weeks. And One of the days, I believe it was Wednesday, he shared this story. The story goes back to the early days of Dallas Theological Seminary there in Dallas, Texas. And the school was founded in 1924. In the first few years, really, the, the school struggled significantly financially. In fact, there was a, a moment as this story unfolds where they were about to close their doors. The creditors were, uh, were going to file bankruptcy at noon on this particular day. They didn't have the money to, to cover their debts. And so during that period, every day was trusting God for literally the next 24 hours to provide. And so that morning when the creditors were about to call, some founders of the school were meeting together in the president's office to pray and ask God to provide for their needs. 
And in that prayer meeting, there was a Bible teacher named H.A. Ironside. H.A. Ironside's a great uh, scholar, a great Bible writer, a great, great author. So he was in this prayer meeting. And when, his, when it was his turn to pray, he prayed this to the Lord. He said, Lord, we know that the cattle on a thousand hills are thine. Please sell some and send us the money. Short, sweet, and to the point. Just about noon that day, the, when the meeting was still going on, a tall Texan in boots and an open-collared shirt strolled into the seminary's business office. How do he said to the office secretary, I, I just sold two cars, carloads of cattle over in Fort Worth, and I've been trying to make a business deal to go through, but it just won't work. And so I feel like the Lord wants me to give this money to the seminary. I have no idea if you need the money, but I just feel like the Lord is telling me to give this money to Dallas Seminary. A sweet lady took the check. She knew the urgency of the moment. She basically ran over to the president's office, knocked on the door, and Dr. Lewis Perry Schaefer, the president and the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, opened the door, listened to what the lady said, took that check. As he looked at it, he recognized the name on the check, recognized that it was a legitimate check, and he hollers over to Dr. Ironside, and he says, Harry, God sold the cattle. (laughs) I heard David Jeremiah share that story the other day, and I thought, man, what a story. What a story. We could go on. I mean, we could share stories. I could share stories from the Bible of how God provides. I could share stories of how I've seen and heard God provide for His people and what He's done for church after church after church. I could share with you stories how even in my own family, how God has provided where there seemed to be no way, all of a sudden, God made a way. Stories like this are exciting. Stories like this are encouraging. Stories like this kind of make us stand in awe of what God can do. But unfortunately, these stories don't usually produce the type of fruit and obedience that they should. You see, these stories, though they invigorate us and excite us, they leave us asking the question, that's neat that God did that for them, but will He do that for me? Will He do that for me? And the answer is this, absolutely. God will do that for you. And he will do, if he'll do it for one person, he'll do it for every person because God is always faithful to his word. And in Malachi 3, verse 10, that I read the first part of earlier, it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Verse 11, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. And then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. I want you to know this is not what I'm saying this morning. This is what the Bible says. This is what God Almighty says. And so as we see the need, as we catch the vision, as we understand that there is some level of opposition, when you're engaged in the work of the gospel, we must also understand that we have to rest in God's provision. We must take Him at His word. So last week I made an appeal to you that if you're not obedient in the area of your stewardship, today ought to be the day. You say, I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills this month. It's the first of the month, you know. Trust the Lord. Be obedient in this area. And I say that with the full confidence of the Word of God, that if you'll do what He says, He will come through on your end. You've got to be faithful. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning.
that um, you would help us. God, I, I fully believe that there are folks sitting in here in this room who are struggling in this area. They know it's true. They know it's true, Lord. But it's a stretch for them. God, I pray you'd help them to exercise faith today. Lord, these four principles are not just for what we do with our money. They're true of everything in life. God, there's folks sitting here perhaps that they really believe you're calling them to do something, serve in this church in some capacity or whatever. But Lord, they're just struggling because they don't have the the faith. They're looking at themselves. They're looking at their inadequacies. They're looking at their lack of abilities when they should be keeping their eyes on you. So Father, I pray whether it's whether it's the need for someone to give their heart and life to you and confess their sin and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, or whether it's a Christian who's struggling in the area of finances, this Christian struggling in the area of, of surrendering and serving in your church, whatever it is, Lord, help our answers today be yes. Yes. We believe God. We trust God. And we will work with the Lord doing it his way God deepen our faith I thank you that your word is powerful and living and sharper than any, than any two edged sword and God it can divide hearts this morning it can do what I do not have the capacity to do so Lord as a gospel preacher I'm resting in your word to bring truth and life into our hearts as we move into a time of invitation a time of response Lord as we sing to you May we be those who would exercise faith. Lord, for the lost man or woman, save them today. For the faithless Christian, bring them to a place of faithfulness. God, for those who've been visiting our church, I say, man, I really sense the Lord leading us here. Confirm that in our heart as well, Lord, as we sing and respond to the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me?